You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 23rd of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme coming up. I'm a Dutch citizen. I cannot vote in the United States. So we have to dance with whoever is on the dance floor. And in the end, for the whole of NATO territory, it is crucial that you have amicable personal relations with the other people. Who will be NATO's next Secretary General? With the safe money on the Netherlands, former Prime Minister Mark Rutte will look at what he could and must do for the military alliance. Also coming up, we have the latest as Israel agrees to send a delegate to peace talks in Paris. Plus, Apple tries to stay ahead in security. We'll explain what post-quantum encryption is. Plus, the newspapers from Austria and Andrew Muller will be here with his take on the last seven days. We learned of just outstanding tidings for anyone who had ever yearned for footwear thematically appropriate to a convivial evening knocking back a Trump steak washed down with Trump wine while playing a few rounds of Trump the game. And why Lyle's Golden Syrup's new logo of a lion with a lousy perm might not stick. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look what else is happening in today's news. The US is to impose sanctions on 500 Russian targets in response to the death of the Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny. Germany's parliament has approved further military support for Ukraine, including supplying long-range weapon systems, but has rejected a call to deliver Taurus cruise missiles to Kyiv. And a spacecraft owned and operated by a private company has landed on the moon. It's the first time a commercial firm has done so. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, it's looking more and more certain that the former Prime Minister of the Netherlands, Mark Rutte, will be the next Secretary General of NATO. A report on the website Politico suggests Mr Rutte has secured the support of two-thirds of NATO countries to lead the military alliance later this year. And he's certainly a vocal candidate, having told the audience at the Munich Security Conference last weekend that Europe needs to stop moaning and whining about Donald Trump and should focus instead on what it can do for Ukraine. Well, over the weekend at Munich's security conference, the Foreign Desk team heard from Hannah Hopko, head of the Democracy in Action conference and a former Ukrainian MP. Here's what she had to say about the conflict as we approach the second anniversary of the war in Ukraine. We need to get this technological advantage because with the limited resources we've been receiving, on the one hand we are thankful for this, mm. but on the other it's not enough to defeat the enemy and let me also be frank with our audience that it's not just Russian war against Ukraine, it's Russian war in Europe. So Europe should invest more and actually 10 years ago it was Russia alone invading Ukraine. Now it's Russia, North Korea with ballistic missiles, it's Iran with kamikaze drones, it's China. So maybe it's a time to wake up and for Europe, taking into consideration what is happening in the United States and actually take more responsibility by providing Ukraine with more weapons and sanctions. European security should not be a hostage 
of turbulences in the United States. That was Hannah Hopko, head of the Democracy in Action conference and a former Ukrainian MP, uh, talking at the Munich Security Conference last weekend. Well, listening to that and to talk about Mark Rutte as well was Steve Erlinger, who's chief diplomatic correspondent in Europe for the New York Times. A very good morning to you, Stephen. Good morning. Um, let's talk about Mark Rutte first and the fact that in the last 24 hours, it's emerged that he's got the support of the biggest NATO players, hasn't he? US, UK, France and Germany. Yes. I mean, I think this has been a done deal for a month or more. Um, the joke that Kaya Kallas, who's the prime minister of Estonia, who actually wanted the job, said that everyone had agreed the next NATO secretary general should be a woman, should come from Central Europe and from a country that spends more than 2% of GDP on defense. That's why she joked it will be Mark Rutte, who is none of those. And yet here he is standing there at the, at the, on the cusp of taking over uh, from Jarl Stoltenberg in, in, in October. I mentioned a moment ago that he, he delivered this rather stinging remark at the Munich Security Conference saying that stop moaning and whining about Donald Trump. I think Trump had just uh, made that rather barbed comment about encouraging Russia to, in, to invade countries that didn't um, stump up for their GDP um, contribution to NATO and, and that Europe should focus instead on what it can do for Ukraine. There seems as if there's a kind of dynamism to, to Rutter's words before he's even you know, got his name on the door. Yes. I mean, I think uh, any new NATO Secretary General will have to understand what Jens Stoltenberg understood, sometimes painfully, which is that the US is the most important part of NATO and one has to get along with any president, whichever president it is. Uh, the Munich Security Conference where I was was sort of terrified that Trump's going to come back, but Rutte, looking ahead, um, made the very sensible point that uh, Europe should be responsible for itself and Europe has to do more in its own defense. That's something American presidents have been preaching ever since Harry Truman. Um, and tell us a little bit more about the about Rutter's relationship with with Trump, insofar as as much of a relationship you can have with him, um, given the fact that he, during his time in office as the the Dutch Prime Minister, he gained himself the reputation of being the, the Trump whisperer, which is also a title that Jens Stoltenberg has been given as well. I mean, what is it about him that keeps things well, keeps a lid on things? Well, Rutter's very. He's been in power a long time. He's very experienced. He's used to one of the things the European Union trains you to do is get on with other with other leaders. So he's been very good at that. And he's comes from a country that is always governed by very complicated coalitions. So he has to get along with weird coalition partners. So that naturally suits him to kind of be the metro D of this very powerful alliance. Now with Trump, um, he has done a couple things and one very important thing for Biden, which is why he got American support. Um, there is an, an enormously important Dutch company called ASML, which is the world's supplier to the semiconductor industry. It has very sophisticated chips and it, um, it has always been very careful about where it exports. And uh, Rutte kind of did a deal in a way with Biden to make sure that ASML did not uh, give a lot of chips of very serious power to China. This was a very important deal and I think earned, earned him Biden's respect. 
Um, his relationship with Trump, I guess, goes back to when Trump was um, president. And as I say, you know, Rutt is not one to throw on insults. He's one to listen and to try to make the best of things. So I think, I don't know if Trump likes him especially, but uh, Trump has no reason to dislike him, at least for the moment. Rutte is is obviously walking into a job where the, the Russia's conflict in Ukraine is will have passed the two and a half year mark by the by the time that Russia takes office. But um, we've we've mentioned, haven't we, the fact that that Russia will have to straddle this 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 relationship within NATO between the United States and Europe, and that is something that you've written about, isn't it? I mean, you have examined the idea of what could happen were Donald Trump to turn its his back on on Europe. Yes, that's right. Now, of course, let's not assume Trump's going to get reelected, but everyone has to make plans. That's the whole point. And we don't even know what Trump wants to do with NATO. I mean, John Bolton, who who worked for him for a while, is convinced Trump would want to pull out of NATO. Other people think, no, it's just about Europeans spending more on their own defense. And if they did that in a big way, Trump would be happy. But the fact of the matter is, I think Emmanuel Macron has been right for some time that the United States, no matter who is the president, um, is interested in Asia, is interested in China, is interested in the Middle East, in Latin America, and Europe, which is wealthy, wealthier than the United States, larger than the United States, should be able to produce its own conventional deterrent. It should be able to take care of its own defense. Um, I mean, certainly with American help, but not with the kind of American superiority and and European complacency that's been the case ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And tell us a little bit more about the way that NATO's balance of power will inevitably be shifting at the moment. When we've seen the arrival of Donald Tusk inside uh, Poland as its new as its new role, returning as its prime minister, and his galvanization of Poland's role within Europe, do you see the same thing happening inevitably on the eastern flank of NATO? as militarily all the efforts seem to be concentrated there. And there is the inevitability that Europe will get more and more drawn into what's going on with Russia in Ukraine. Well, your point's well taken. I mean, obviously, it is the countries that are closest to Russia that are the most shaken by by what's happening. Uh, those are countries that are also spending a lot of money on defense. Poland will get up close to 4% of GDP this year. The Baltic nations are all spending close to 3%, if not more. Um, so NATO, which has already put in some forward troops along eight countries that border Russia, um, is obviously going to concentrate on what was always NATO's prime concern, which was keeping the Russians out. I mean, that was always what NATO was about from 1949 onward. So uh, it's clarified for um, NATO what its real job is um, as the East is, you know, getting more powerful, which it is inside the EU also. Obviously, concerns about Russia will be most important. But uh, the biggest problem, I think, for NATO is getting 
the people in Western Europe to understand that this war affects them too. It's beginning to happen and that they also will need to spend much more money on defense, even approaching Cold War uh, levels. I mean, in Germany, in West Germany, certainly, uh, spending was nearly 4% of GDP for most of, of the Cold War. Now, this year is the first year since 89 Germany will spend 2%. So it's a gradual understanding. And then you have worries that if Putin does well in Ukraine, he will rebuild his forces and then the next three to five years may be tempted, may be tempted to test NATO's collective responsibility. Uh, That's really in the realm of speculation, but that's something obviously Europeans need to consider and to plan for. And what can Rutter do with this, given the fact that as Prime Minister of the Netherlands, he rather gathered himself the reputation for being able to manage the French and the Germans in the way that the British used to do before they left the EU? That's right. Well, the Dutch and the British, the Dutch mourn British leaving the EU very much, by the way. Um, it's a very similar idea of what of what Europe should be. No, the Dutch are 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 very practical. First of all, Rutte is you know he's temporary prime prime minister, but um, they're going to spend more on defence. And he he does understand already that a large part of his job is keeping consensus, and that means keeping the United States involved, engaged. And that means dealing, as he said himself, with whomever sits in the Oval Office. That's not the issue. The issue is how does NATO show the United States, particularly if it's Donald Trump, that it is doing its part, um, that it's not a free rider, that Europe is contributing significantly to its own defense, particularly in in conventional terms. I mean, I, I think the American nuclear umbrella rests there no matter what. Stephen Erlanger, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. in Jerusalem, 7.14 here in London. Now, the Israeli government has decided to send a delegation to Paris to take part in talks later today with representatives from Qatar, Egypt and the United States. The decision was made following a cabinet meeting last night in Israel. There had been considerable uncertainty over whether Israel was ready to re-engage in the peace process after last week. Well, Hannah McCarthy is a journalist who's been covering the war since it began and she joins me now from Jerusalem. Good morning, Hannah. Good morning, Emma. Now, this was news that that broke pretty late last night, wasn't it, that Israel is sending a high-level delegation to peace talks in Paris. Tell us what more we might know. So the US had publicly told Israel that it should send uh, a delegation to Paris. Uh, It's seen as as a serious effort to get an agreement in place for a temporary truce before Ramadan starts. Um, the Yoav Gallant had said, or sorry, Benny Gantz had uh, basically issued this kind of public warning that if the hostages were not returned before Ramadan, the Israeli forces would go into Rafah. Rafah has become an, an increasingly apparent red line for much of the international community. Uh, there was a G20 meeting yesterday in Brazil where people talked about you know, the need for a ceasefire, uh, the fact that there was concern about Rafah and the need for 
a two-state solution. So all of this was putting pressure on Israel to send a delegation. And, you know, the agreement seems to be something around a six-week temporary truce that would lead to the possibility uh, of a of a full ceasefire with, again, a staggered release of hostages, as we've seen in previous agreements. Now, this is a step up, isn't it, from... Uh, last week when the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu declined to send a delegation to Cairo. So what do you think has changed? Well, we're definitely seeing more pressure from the US. So the US has consistently vetoed uh, any uh, UN Security uh, Security Council resolutions that would call for a ceasefire. And it did reject Algeria's one uh, earlier this week. But what it did is it's drafted its own, which includes for the first time language calling for a ceasefire. It's not clear how serious it is about actually putting that resolution to a vote yet, but it certainly sends a a strong message. What we're also hearing is increasing uh, soundings from uh, other countries that about about restricting the trade of arms to Israel, which would seriously affect Israel's ability to kind of prolong this military operation. Uh, So the Netherlands has already suspended um, uh, some uh, delivery of weapons for some fighter jets. Uh, the UK is, uh, has publicly said it's considering whether uh, in the event of a Rafa military operation it would suspend arms. So that is definitely uh, the kind of uh, statements that would put Israel under increased pressure to come to a political agreement. What is the strategic importance of the ground assault on Rafa? It's clearly led countries to draw a line. But one wonders. Uh, there was a there was a spe- talk a little bit earlier that not only is a is it important for Israel to to root out all the um, Hamas uh, fighters and also to get the hostages back, but a more cynical suggestion was put forward, which is that making Rafa uninhabitable uninhabitable was also something that Israel had in mind. How true is that? Well, look, it's clear that, I mean, over 80% of the population are displaced. So anyone who is now in Rafa, statistically, they have been displaced from elsewhere. They may have already lost families. So the idea of making that, like Rafa uninhabitable, a place that is already, you know, it's facing bombardment as we talk now. Over 100 people have died in the last 24 hours. So it's not that there is no military activity there. But I think there are real concerns that a military operation in Rafa would put uh, pressure uh, on Egypt to open its borders um, and allow uh, Palestinians uh, into an area. And we've seen building works going around the border there. Uh, they've said it's you know extra security walls. Some people have said this looks like you know uh, again an even more open air basic prison than what many people have described uh, Gaza as. So there's real concerns about uh, you know the displacement of Gazans, not just from their homes within Gaza but from Gaza into Egypt. And the United States has suggested in the last 24 hours that Hamas' position has softened somewhat um, and that this might have been one of the things that has persuaded Israel to send its delegation to Paris. Do we know anything more about that? So I think the two points that softened was uh, the nature of some of the prisoners that they were looking to be exchanged. So uh, Hamas wanted you know, a kind of a large-scale release of prisoners with serious convictions. So there are prisoners uh, held in Israeli prisons for over 40 years in some cases uh, for uh, serious crime, uh, you know, murder, 
kind of large scale terrorist attacks uh, and uh, pal- uh, Hamas wanted uh, some of these uh, figures released or a significant number of them. Uh, and I think Israel has been reluctant to agree to a, a large scale release of senior uh, I guess, you know, prisoners. Uh, again, they, they released Yahya Sinwar uh, in uh, a prisoner release deal and they're very concerned about the ability for some of these men to organise another operation. At the same time, you know, Hamas have said it's important that these people are released. And again, Hamas had also wanted a, a complete cessation to the hostilities, you know, a, a full a withdrawal of the Israeli forces from Gaza from the outset of the ceasefire. And they've softened on that. And it looks like there would be something like a six-week pause that might lend or might lead to a full cessation of hostilities. Uh, finally, there was uh, news that broke yesterday that uh, the US in- a US intelligence assessment um, of the claims that Israel made that UN agency staff were participating in the Hamas attack on the 7th of October um, could not be identified, ident- independently verified. Um, but there were slight doubts on just how complete this assessment was by Israel. What do we know about that? Sure. So Anthony Blinken in January, uh, the US Secretary of State, said that Israel's accusations were highly, highly credible. What we have today or this week is a report that uh, is much weaker in its language than the language we heard from Blinken. It says it has low confidence in the basic claim that a handful of staff participation in the 7th of October attack. And it said that it could not independently confirm uh, the veracity of these claims. And it said that Israel had actually not provided the raw intelligence behind its assessments with the US, which I think is a remarkable statement considering how close the US is in its partnership with Israel. So the fact that Israel has not shared the underlying intelligence in relation to its claim that has resulted in the large scale cessation of donor funding to UNRWA with serious implications for uh, Palestinians in Gaza, you know, I mean, it raises questions about why Anthony Blinken was so confident in January uh, about saying these claims are highly, highly credible. And again, even we heard from Elon Levy, he had said that um, the Israeli spokesperson, he had said that intelligence had not been shared with the UN or UNRWA because uh, Israel didn't trust uh, the UN, but it had shared it with, you know, Western government partners. But now it seems that actually the, the underlying intelligence hadn't been shared. Hannah McCarthy, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Jerusalem. Still to come on today's Globalist, we'll hear Andrew Muller's unique take on what the last seven days have taught us. We learned of just outstanding tidings for anyone who had ever yearned for footwear thematically appropriate to a convivial evening knocking back a Trump steak washed down with Trump wine while playing a few rounds of Trump the game. Stay with us on Monocle Radio. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter, to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week 
for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. in Vienna, 7.23 here in London. Now let's head to Austria to get a look at today's newspapers. Joining me on the line from St. Anton is Noel Salmi, Travel, Culture and Sustainability writer. Good uh, good morning to you, Noel. Good morning, Emma. How's St. Anton looking this morning? Absolutely gorgeous. It is snowing. It is really lovely. Delighted to hear it. Right. In between looking at the weather, what have you found in the papers for us, please? Well, the first thing I found is that the Washington Post and the New York Times uh, reported on a trove of leaked documents from a state-linked hacking group in China. And it's really breathtaking. They show how extensive, systematic, and far-reaching China's state-sponsored hacking goes. Um, It's interesting because they show how uh, Beijing hires private companies Uh, which compete with each other to pursue cyber intrusions of foreign governments uh, everywhere. Uh, This particular list of documents shows uh, contracts to extract data from targets in over 20 countries, including India, Hong Kong, Thailand, South Korea, and the UK, as well as uh, targets within China, like its ethnic minorities. It's interesting insofar as, uh, well, firstly, it's private companies doing this and they're not charging a great deal of money for it. If you look at the New York Times article, it talks about um, a local government in southwest China paying less than $15,000 for access to the private website of the traffic police in Vietnam. I mean, how useful the traffic police in Vietnam is in terms of information is one thing, but to be able to get such detailed information from absolutely anywhere for not much money is, is a huge thing, isn't it? Well, it's really a huge thing, and it's a result of uh, the state-sponsored approach plus uh, this free competition. So the competition is fierce, uh, and um, there are just multiple companies. This particular company was called iSoon, and it's based in Shanghai, uh, but it's just one of many companies that uh, fight to uh, sell data to multiple Chinese ministries, Uh, among them the State Security Ministry, the People's Liberation Army, the National Police, as well as the Ministry of Public Security, so it can keep tabs on its own citizens. And uh, these companies outdo themselves in offering uh, more intense and in-depth data from anywhere you can imagine. Uh, From NATO, uh, there were several targets in the UK, including the Home Office, the Foreign Office, even think tanks like Chatham House. So it's sort of been the state-sponsored plus private competition model, which has really driven prices down. Uh, let's move to a story in the Tagus Anzeiger um, about Switzerland uh, making stalking a punishable offence. Uh, yes, well, up until now in Switzerland, as the Tagus Anzeiger reports, um, a stalker could be fined for, possibly for trespassing, but anything else was really not uh, illegal. So a stalker could follow a person for years every single day uh, at their place of work in and out, could order sex toys and send them to the workplace. And these weren't really considered a crime, uh, but that looks like it's going to change. Uh, the uh, On yesterday, the, um, uh, the legal commission of Switzerland's federal assembly drafted wording uh, for a law to make stalking a crime. This was pushed forward by, this issue was pushed forward by a former forensics specialist in Zurich, 
and a Zurich prosecutor, Sabina Tobler, who said she's confronted many of these cases in her 20 year history and uh, was unable to prosecute a lot of these offenders. Uh, but says, you know, the cumulative effects for the victim can really be emotionally damaging. So this is really good news uh, for people in Switzerland, 85% of whom are women being stalked by men. Although sometimes it's tenants, new tenants uh, in, in the previous house of the stalker. There are some uh, pretty crazy stalkers out there. So, so now now they're going to uh, uh, face some uh, some consequences for their actions and up th- to three years. And I thought, prison, that Swiss, I thought that Switzerland had such a cool head. Um, let's talk about uh, Finland, a company, a country, a company, a country, I should say, which has a reputation for being um, a very happy place. However, it has always had to manage the fact that it has incredibly high suicide rates. This has changed. That's right. Uh, in 1990, as the Guardian reports, uh, Finland recorded over 1,500 suicide deaths in what was then a population of under 5 million. Now, that's a really big number. Uh, and it has managed to lower it to quite recently uh, less than half that, 740 suicides in a population that's grown to 5.6 million. Sounds like a lot, but it is a number that's much more in line with uh, European averages. Um The Finnish Institute for Health and Welfare has been running a national suicide prevention project. They ran one uh, in the 90s, which lowered suicide by uh, 13%, focusing on improved care, uh, using antidepressants and a data-driven focus on best practices to treat other disorders like alcohol abuse. And they are now in the midst of another new prevention initiative. Um, It's interesting. Uh, It turns out that Finland's darkness maybe uh, maybe can make people depressed, but it's in spring that the light causes people to feel anxious. Uh, so suicides historically don't actually happen in the winter. Noel Salmi, thank you so much for joining us on the line from St. Anton. The time here in London is just nudging 7.30am. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. And it's time now for a look at the rest of today's news headlines. The U.S. is to impose sanctions on 500 Russian targets in response to the death of the Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny. President Joe Biden held a meeting with Mr Navalny's wife and daughter, calling Mr Navalny a man of incredible courage. Germany's parliament has approved further military support for Ukraine, including supplying long-range weapon systems, but it's rejected a call to deliver terrorist cruise missiles to Kyiv. Germany is the second biggest donor of military aid to Ukraine in its war with Russia, but Chancellor Olaf Scholz has resisted pressure to supply the Taurus missiles, fearing it could cause the conflict to escalate. A spacecraft owned and operated by a private company has landed on the moon. It's the first time a commercial firm has done this. The company, Intuitive Machines, landed its Odysseus robot near to the lunar South Pole, which reportedly holds frozen water vital to sustaining human life. And Mexico's freedom of information body is investigating after the country's president disclosed the phone number of a New York Times journalist looking into claims of ties between his allies and drug cartels. President Andres Manuel López Obrador read the phone number out during his daily news conference. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. (laughs) 
7.31 here in London. Now, so much of our private data, messages, medical records, payments and transfers are protected by encryption, a scrambling process that makes it legible only to those intended to read it. Well, while we have become used to enjoying that protection, there is a race behind the scenes to maintain it, with ever-growing threats from vastly powerful so-called quantum computers. Now, Apple has launched its first tranche of so-called post-quantum protections to help us and to explain everything. I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Amit Kaswala, who's an editor at Wired, and they join me on the line now. Very good morning to you, Amit. Hello, how are you? Uh, Very well, thank you, and very keen to have this all explained in very simple language, please. Um, So quantum computers, for those of us who are not absolutely across this, what are they and what do they threaten to do to to our security? So quantum computers are a new type of computer that are based on the laws of quantum physics. So if a normal computer just uses ones and zeros, quantum computers can use ones, zeros and something in between. This is called superposition. So they basically take advantage of the uncertainty of subatomic physics to give themselves like a bit of an edge over classical computers. That gives quantum computers the ability to perform calculations that would take an ordinary computer thousands of years and do them in seconds or minutes. I like to think of it as used as like unlocking a new set of moves on a chessboard. It's not that they're faster or more powerful, it's that they are doing something fundamentally different. And the fact remains now is that they are very much a part of the security system and they also promise a great deal, don't they? This isn't just a threat. This is something that is, is immen- that could be immensely helpful to us. It could be immensely helpful to us. It could be immensely dangerous. So um, there's lots of potential for quantum computers to help us out in things like drug discovery or um, you know tackling climate change they can do things like help us understand photosynthesis they can do things like stimulate uh, chemical reactions the way that quantum computers work is that they are much more closely aligned with how the natural world works right the natural world isn't made of ones and zeros it's made of probabilities and quantum computers are made of the same stuff as the natural world which means they're very good at simulating nature so they could be really really useful at unlocking some things in biology and chemistry that we haven't really been able to crack yet with current computers however they could also as you alluded to completely upend our um, cryptographic systems and so apple is now starting a post-quantum protection service tell us a little bit more about that if you could yes so 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 to explain that so Basically, a lot of the encryption techniques that we currently rely on use things like factoring, which are very, very difficult for classical computers to do. This is things like breaking down a number like 15 into 3 and 5, which actually is surprisingly difficult for a normal computer. Once you get to those much bigger numbers, it takes a long time for a normal computer to do that, even for the best kind of supercomputers. Um, But quantum computers, for quantum computers, it would in theory be much, much easier. So therefore, all the Um, encryption algorithms that we've been using for decades that rely on factoring and other things like that are vulnerable to quantum computers. So what Apple's done is it's announced a post-quantum cryptographic protocol. So uh, that's going to be included in iMessage, which is its messaging um, app that you use when you text another iPhone user. You get the little blue bubble instead of the green bubble. Um, And essentially, they're going to combine their existing uh, crypto uh, graphic methods with this new post-quantum cryptography in the hope that when quantum computers finally arrive, 
these messages that are being sent now will be more protected than they would have been. So they would have been vulnerable to quantum computers. The, the hope is that they won't be anymore because of this post-quantum cryptographic protocol that Apple has introduced. So this is something, obviously, that, that Apple has, has got going, but this isn't Apple isn't the only company that's trying to do this, isn't it? Because so many uh, tech companies are having to, well, arguably every tech company has to ready itself. Yeah, I mean, it's not just tech companies either. It's governments, it's businesses, it's, um, you know, probably not something that individuals necessarily need to worry about themselves. But, you know, tech companies are racing to build these machines as well, right? So Amazon, Google, um, and others are trying to build quantum computers, um, and as are various countries and governments around the world. And at the same time, there is, as you mentioned, a national race to, international race to build the algorithms that will protect the same countries from the machines that they think their rivals are building, right? So there's a big effort by the United States National Institute of Standards and Technology uh, to develop these post-quantum cryptography algorithms and get new standards that can then be rolled out across websites and messaging apps and other things so that everyone would be protected. Um, the big fear is that, you know, all the messages we're sending now are basically up for grabs and actually there were rumours that, you know, certain intelligence agencies are stockpiling data now so that when they get a quantum computer, they can go back and crack historical files and things like that. Which agencies are we talking about? Well, I don't want to speculate too much, but, you know, three lesser agencies uh, in the United States and perhaps some some government agencies in, in China and places like that. Amit Ketwala, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. It's at 8.36am in Milan, which is where we head now, because the fashion world has swapped the reign of London for the smog of Milan for the city's fashion week. Uh, Natalie Theodosi is one of those. She's our fashion editor and she joins me now. Good morning. How's, uh, how's Milan looking today? Good morning. It's looking a little bit sunnier. We had a day of rain, but it's looking sunnier and there's a day full of shows, so it's it's a good mood. Okay, so off we go. Lots and lots of energy, but this isn't the first day. We've had a couple of shows already, haven't we? We've had uh, Fendi and we've had Prada. Should we? Where do you want to start, Natalie? Exactly. So maybe we can start with Fendi, which opens uh, Milan Fashion Week. And it was uh, a really great show this season. I think Kim Jones, who is the artistic director, is really finding his feet. He's working very closely with uh, Sylvia Fendi and her daughters, drawing inspiration from them and their style and really managed to create this very elegant, quintessentially Italian look that I think everyone loved seeing on the runway. And it started Milan on a really positive note. It did look incredibly elegant and there was a sort of an, an, an ease of dressing to it as well. Um, is it true that, that Kim Jones was, was digging around in the Fendi archives and, and actually bringing out the work of, of Karl Lagerfeld as inspiration? It is, yes. And what's interesting is that he actually had such a mix of references. He said that he looked at the archives from the 1980s, but then he brought back his own memories of, of the 80s. And he was in London, so he spoke about the Blitz kids, the Neuromantics, Lee Bowery. But the end result was actually something quite paired back and elegant because what he took from all of that was a sense of ease, a sense of elegance that he said is both British and Italian because it's about 
not caring what anyone thinks and just dressing for yourself, which I think is a really great message. Indeed, that, that's pretty well explained because when you read into his his thoughts of saying, let's bring in Lee Barry, let's bring in the Blitz kids, you see a, a sort of anarchic, uh, explosive energy to, to dressing. But what we saw on those catwalks were incredibly modest, fabulous form and beautiful tailoring. And one wonders whether there was a sort of a major sigh of relief about just how wearable what was being sent out was. I think so. And I think the the reason behind that is that he's so close to Sylvia Fendi and her daughter, Delfina de Letres, who also designs the jewelry for his shows and Sylvia designs the bags. And he says that his main inspiration is these women that are the the beating heart of Fendi. And one of, uh, except from the 80s, he also was really inspired by the, um, he spoke about a utility kind of safari suit that Sylvia Fendi was wearing when they first met to talk about him coming on board. And I think it's great that instead of just looking at his own inspirations and pursuing his own agenda, he's really involving these women and season after season drawing inspiration from them. Hence why his clothes are wearable and not only the Fendi family, but women around the world can see themselves wearing them um, in their daily lives. We had a pretty similar story at Prada, didn't we? That, that was also really muted and very grown up. Exactly. And again, um, it was uh, about looking back at history. I actually managed to to go backstage and, and speak to uh, Mrs. Prada and Ralph Siemens. And I mean, they usually speak with enigmas, but what they were saying was that we need to learn from history, not be nostalgic, but look back and learn from history. And that she wanted to take elements of the past, like the bow, uh, those traditional uh, kind of beret hats and to set them free to reinvent them in in more modern ways uh, and in a context where women feel and uh, where women feel liberated so yeah it was uh, I think a, an ongoing theme of looking back at history and, and taking references but then kind of bringing together something that's wearable and easy, but also very grown up and elegant. There's also something utterly brilliant about seeing Raph Simons and Mutua Prada going on, taking their bows at the end. And she is this, 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 you know, this creative force, isn't she? Absolutely, yes. And, you know, it it never gets old seeing seeing them come and take their bow together, like you say. And I mean, she herself is such an embodiment of of the Prada look. She she was in in her skirt suit with matching brooches and, and earrings and speaking so elegantly about her inspirations and how she she views fashion today. She never wants to say anything too explicit, but I think she, she uses fashion to to very subtly send messages, whether it's about the world, about feminism. I think we could be all be a little bit more uh, Mutia Prada if we could. Um, let's look ahead to the rest of uh, the rest of the shows. We've got Todd's and we've got Gucci coming up, and Gucci trying to change direction again. Gucci has been trying to uh, change direction since uh, last year when they appointed Sabato De Sarno as a new creative director. He had uh, his first season last uh, September and and now this afternoon he's going to be showing his second women's wear effort, which I think will tell us a little bit more about the direction that he wants to take the brand because it always takes 
some time. I think there have been mixed reviews about the new Gucci. Some people say it's too commercial, it's too simple. But I really do think that that sense of pragmatism and also taking inspirations that are very central to Italy, to the women on the streets, is actually has a lot of potential to develop into something really inspiring and equally commercially successful. So I'm actually very excited to see um, what uh, he will be doing this afternoon. And it continues the narrative that we've just been talking about at, at, at Prada and at Fendi, this simplicity, this Italian elegance. What does that do when you have a sort of a, a kind of concerted front, a, you know, united front by the major fashion houses in terms of placing Milan in the middle of the fashion calendar? Well, what has been uh, the conversation the last few days is that Milan, given its commercial prowess, is actually coming head to head with Paris, which used to be the ultimate fashion capital. But now uh, Milan is, is equally important. These brands are growing and growing. And there's also off the catwalk uh, labels like Brunello Cucinelli, Loro Piana, which are kind of uh, leaders in, in this kind of timeless, pragmatic dressing that have, again, been growing commercially in in very fast paces, uh, opening shops around the world. So Milan has become even more important. Uh, What it might be missing is kind of a lot of young talent, I think, because the students here prefer to go into one of the houses and train uh, uh, in, in the with the brands instead of starting their own brands straight away. But that's not a bad thing. And there's still a lot of energy and a lot of ideas coming out of the city. So definitely uh, a very important city. It always has been and, and it's growing in importance. Natalie Theodosi on the line from Milan. Thank you so much for joining us. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Time now for a recap. Here's Andrew Muller and his roundup of the week's news in What We Learned. I said nobody knows you When you're down now We learned this week of one means of covering near enough to half a billion dollars in penalties occasioned by a combination of ramping one's property values and defaming a woman one has sexually assaulted. We learned that former and perhaps future US President Donald Trump has added to his sprawling range of self-branded tat, already including but not limited to... Trump stakes are the world's greatest stakes, and I mean that in every sense of the word. And we're very proud of it. We make the finest wine, as good a wine as you can get anywhere in the world. And my new game is Trump, the game, Trump, the game where you deal for everything you ever wanted to own. So we learned of just outstanding tidings for anyone who had ever yearned for footwear thematically appropriate to a convivial evening knocking back a Trump steak washed down with Trump wine while playing a few rounds of Trump the game. We learned that Trump is now selling shoes. I just want to tell you, you know, I've wanted to do this for a long time. I have some incredible people that work with me on things and 
they came up with this, and this is something I've been talking about for 12 years, 13 years. And we learned that these 12 or 13 years of meticulous excogitation had paid inexplicably off. There was a big win for Trump this weekend, hours after he launched his new sneaker line in a surprise visit to SneakerCon in Philadelphia. The gold never surrender. High tops officially sold out. No word yet on if the limited supply of $399 kicks will be restocked. We learned therefrom of a hitherto dormant tendency towards flint-hearted scepticism at Fox News. Can they possibly be countenancing the prospect that Donald Trump, Donald John Trump of all upstanding business folk, would commit such shabby subterfuge, betray such contempt for his customers as to manufacture further supplies of something branded as limited edition? Does that really sound like something that would ever imaginably occur? We learned, however, that the former president was not the only prominent conservative thinker with something to sell. We learned, or were reminded by our special annual alarm... ..that it was time, once again, for CPAC. Oh, no. Well, yes. We learned, however, that irritatingly and almost as if they were trying to evade our scorn, CPAC, properly the Conservative Political Action Conference and annual stateside Yahoo Rodeo, was due to start on Wednesday and finish on Saturday, which isn't entirely convenient for a whimsical news monologue usually recorded on Thursday for broadcast on Friday. But we can probably get away with holding over anything especially preposterous until next week, right? Yeah. Yeah. Good to know. We learned, however, that if we were to be reduced to trying to make fun of CPAC in advance, there was plenty of material in the agenda, not the least of which was the promise of an oration by... We import two-thirds of our cheese. That is a disgrace. Hooray. We did not learn whether or not Liz Truss... Come on, you remember. Plans to berate a doubtless agog audience at CPAC about cheese, but did surmise that she will probably be caning her imminent book, Ten Years to Save the West, the American subtitle of which is, and we are not making this up, Leading the Revolution Against Globalism, Socialism and the Liberal Establishment. And if you think that isn't going to tee up a sequence of extremely cheap jokes blunderingly illustrated with crass sound effects, you must be new to these monologues. Yes, we learned, or at least concluded, that CPAC attendees of bygone days apparently now were gog for the revolution-leading expertise of someone who, to judge by the same cover, can't remember what job she was doing. It says former Prime Minister of Great Britain. She was actually Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. American Liz Truss fans unclear on the difference should ask someone from Northern Ireland. Would probably also have paid for lessons in Arctic maritime navigation from Captain Edward John Smith. Is there anyone there? Yes, what do you see? Iceberg, right ahead! Thank you. Cavalry command from Colonel George Armstrong Custer.
and Zeppelin parking from Captain Max Pross. Crashing terrible. Oh my, get out of the way, please. It's burning and bursting into flames and, and it's falling on the morning fast and all the folks between us. This is terrible. This is the worst of the worst catastrophes in the world. There's like another dozen of these we workshop, the charge of the Light Brigade, the voyage of the 2nd Russian Pacific Squadron to the Tsushima Strait, and so on. We might do them next week, depending on how her speech goes. Stay tuned. And slash but. We learned of the good news following recent bad news for roly-poly North Korean despot Kim Jong-un, who has been doubtless downcast of late after he learned that his specific haircut, the short at the sides, long on top, Korean Workers' Party in front, tyranny at the back, had been specifically forbidden in Afghanistan by a recent edict issued to barbers by the Taliban, which invade gravely against coiffures sported by, and we quote, infidels in the West or North Korea. We learned that, possibly in a bid to cheer him up following this rebuke, President Vladimir Putin of Russia had given Kim a car, which, Russian automotive engineering being what it historically has, may be a mixed blessing, but it's the thought that counts. We learned that the banger in question is an Oras Senat limousine of the sort which ferries Putin between bunkers and weirdly homoerotic photo opportunities. We learned that the gift had been greatly appreciated by the recipient, as was obediently stenographed by Rodong Sinmun, the always riveting newspaper of the Central Committee of the Workers' Party of Korea, and as will now be read out loud by Monocle's Pyongyang desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. King Yojong courteously convened King Jong-un's thanks to Putin, saying that the gift serves as a clear demonstration of the special rapport between the top leaders of the DPRK and Russia, and as the best present. Reckon he would have preferred biscuits. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you, Andrew, and thanks also to Fernanda Augusto Pacheco for that. You're listening to Monocle Radio. prompts companies to rebrand, a desire to stay relevant, to close a chapter on a difficult episode, or just for the sake of it. Some of the world's oldest logos are the most enduring. Take Michelin's Bibendum, for example. But now the British brand Lyle's Golden Syrup recognises having the world's oldest branding has decided to change things. Well, joining me now from the snowy ski resort of Chamonix is Alexander Mazouros, who's business manager at the global brand strategy firm Wink Creative. Very good morning to you, Alexander. Good morning, Emma. How are you? Well, very well and and looking forward to my breakfast, which isn't normally a stack of pancakes liberally doused in golden syrup, but it is an absolute staple of British breakfasts, isn't it? I guess so, from what I've learned in uh, my time living in London so far. um, You need something sweet in the morning. And it is an enduring brand as well. I mean, this is recognised as the oldest logo. It's quite an odd one, isn't it? But it's very distinctive. Well, it has a great story behind it where you talked about the founders leaning in on the story of Samson discovering honey and bees inside the carcass of a lion. I mean, when you, when, when you first see the original identity, it's a little jarring to be like, what is this carcass of a lion with bees? But you learn about the story and the parable of from strength comes sweetness. Um, it, it, it's a really strong heritage brand foundation. And 
it's you have to wonder why now with this rebrand. And it is rebranded with what? So the, the lion's carcass with the bees, which is strange but has a very traditional and, and enduring feeling to it, has replaced by what I could only describe as a lion with a really bad perm. <laughs> I, I think so. And look, this this new logo will work well with digital. Um, their their brand director wanted something that's contemporary and that addresses audiences' needs, but. I think I take a little exception with the latter part because, one, I think audiences need consistency. They're keeping the old brand in the cans, but the new brand is on the jars and bottles. That, that to me, just confuses customers. Um, but I also think that today's consumers need authenticity and the power of this old heritage brand that they have you know, to, to evolve this, it really should look like an extension of the old brand. I think they've just gone a quantum leap a little far, which perhaps is justified after 120 years or so. When is a brand change as profound as this actually justified? I, I mean, I, I think it's about keeping up with who the brand and company is today. Um, and perhaps today they are more of a lion with a perm than a parable of Samson. And the issue some might also suggest is that um, having something excessively sugary has, well, what was once recognised as a really nice treat, does have its, you know, its health side effects that people are very, very conscious about. Do you think that by rebranding it, it will actually make the, the product more attractive or is this actually drawing attention to something that perhaps it doesn't need to? Well, the, the, the cynic of me sees this a little bit more of a PR activity than a rebrand activity. I mean, we're no stranger to the health food trends that have been over the past decade plus. Um, and it's been that long since they've talked about the brand. I think it was around 2006 they received recognition for it being the Guinness World Book longest lasting brand. So maybe it's time for them to cause up some more noise and attention to the brand and um and the company and the product, and they're doing that through this rebrand to try to drive top-line revenue. Now, you're absolutely in the business of rebranding companies. Is there a moment when you ever turn around to a company and say, no, leave it as it is because what you have is heritage and authenticity and actually a bit of beauty involved in there as well? Don't change it. Well, as a creative agency, we we always want to get our hands on uh, on the design and do what we can with it. I, I think what we're seeing with a lot of companies these days, especially bigger companies with a strong brand presence, is um, looking for what we call heightening and tightening, where they have a strong brand, they're known. They don't need to change everything, but maybe it's just a subtle logo tweak or how they use their mark um, needs to be refined a little bit. So we're definitely seeing a trend of that and kind of briefs we're receiving today. So do you think Tate and Lyle have made the right or wrong decision here? Oh, man. If it works for them and they're happy, then um, it would be the right decision. But for me, I would have loved to have seen something that isn't so far from the original identity because you kind of lose that story and not many brands have 100 plus years of heritage to lean on. Alexander Masaurus, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. And that's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Carlotta Ribello, Emma Sell and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researcher was Naima Ekwa and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard with editing assistance from Jack Dewars. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday here in London and The Globalist is back at the same time on Monday. I hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you for listening. Have a great weekend.